Father, we do thank you for the great privilege and the great hope that we have, even as we've read about in your word, as we've sung about uh, in our music, as we anticipate that great and glorious future that you have ordained for all of your children, those you have redeemed in your son, and it is to be in your presence forever. Paul could say, in light of all that he suffered, that he didn't consider it worthy not even worthy to be compared with the glories that were awaiting him and all who belong to you through Christ. And I pray that you would open our minds to discover, to rest in, to taste and feel and see the glories and the delights of an eternity with you, free from this burden of sin, free to worship you and to give our hearts unreservedly forever and forever to the worship and the praise of your name and to the delight of you and one another. So strengthen our minds, strengthen our hearts with these glorious truths. And at the same time, your word gives us not only those hopes, but it gives us warnings. And we have one of the greatest warnings in all of Scripture in the life of Judas, whom we'll look at this morning. And I pray that as we do, you would guide us and help us to learn the lessons that you have designed for us here. And we will commit our time to you. We thank you for redemption, for forgiveness of sin, for a perfect Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Even though we've been away for a couple of weeks out of Matthew, and it will be many weeks until we're able to come back, This is uh, important to look at this section, and in one sense it stands on its own, and it does complete our last look at Peter's life, and particularly Peter's denials of Christ in these last moments of his false trial, his pseudo-trial there with the Jewish leaders, as they were looking for a reason to condemn him, to put him to death. And we have right next to that, then, not only the, the tears of Peter in verse 75 of chapter 26, but we have now... A different kind of tears in the life of Judas, and this is such a crucial, crucial portion of Scripture to understand, not only in terms of what it reveals about Christ, as all of Scripture does, but also what it reveals in terms of our own spiritual life and the reality of true and false repentance and true and false sorrow for sin. And so those are the two things, really, that we have before us this morning, as we do continually as we go through the Gospels. The glory of Christ standing out or shining against the backdrop of the wickedness of everyone else or the failure of everyone else, even of his own beloved disciples who were failed him in his final hours, as he said that they would. When we come in this morning, then, the title of the message is The Hopelessness of the Wicked. The Hopelessness of the Wicked or of Wickedness. And that will take up most of our time this morning. Let's begin by reading the passage Uh, Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll look at it closely, more closely. Verse 27, or verse 1 of chapter 27. Now when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. And returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priest and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together, and with that money, or with the money, bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Go back up to verse 1, and let's notice firstly... That the wicked devise evil against the righteous. You can say the wicked vainly devise evil against the righteous. Look at verse 1. He says, Now when morning came, when the morning came, 
This is, of course, the first morning since the evil designs of the Jewish leaders were actually put into action when they went to take Judas, led by the betrayer, or to take Jesus, led by the betrayer Judas, out of the garden in the secrecy of night, hiding under the cloak of darkness their own wicked and evil designs. They came and they took Jesus away that evening that is recorded for us earlier in Matthew chapter 26. It's the morning after they dragged him off to have these semi-secret meetings, which were all illegal, but meant to give some kind of superficial semblance of following the law of God. They took him off and they secretly tried him and they knowingly brought false charges against him, knowingly trying to conjure up something to put him to death because they hated him so And, of course, they could find no charge against him, and they knew that. And so Jesus gave them a reason in their own minds by speaking the truth to them. So in the end of the day, the only charge that the leaders had against him was the very truth of who Christ was, namely that he was the Son of Man anticipated by Daniel, who would come on the clouds in judgment of the rebellious which included these religious leaders who at that time were condemning him to death. It is the morning only hours after they cried out for his death. In verse 66, he deserves death. And the mocking and the ridicule that followed that when they spat in his face, beat him and so forth. Just a foretaste of what was to come in the shame in their attempt to humiliate Jesus in every way. But it's also the morning for this reason that Matthew makes that note. Because rabbinic law, the the law, the, the interpretation of the rabbis, required that it be in the morning. And so they're superficially, again, trying to follow their own rules and structures. Yet even in doing that, they're breaking their own laws. For, as we mentioned before, it required actually three days for them to confer, for them to deliberate before one was actually condemned. And in fact, during those three days, the leaders, those who were a part of the trial, were supposed to give every opportunity for other witnesses to come in favor of the one condemned to try to release him. In other words, they had designed in their own rabbinic laws... An intention of mercy. But all of that was foregone here. All of that was just put aside to the side. And even though they're trying to keep up some image of righteousness, in fact, they weren't concerned about justice at all. Not at all. Not in the least bit. They had already determined to put Christ to death. We read that throughout the Gospels, but we even begin this section, these last hours with that in the first part of Matthew 26, they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. That was, of course, their plan all along, was to put Jesus to death. So this is a hypocritical counsel. Nonetheless, they came together, and Matthew tells us that they conferred together. They conferred together. Again, the purpose of this was simply to carry out the plans that they had already intended, that they had long intended. And they needed two sets of charges then to bring against Jesus. They needed a set of charges according to their own religious law, one that according to their religious sensibilities would give them the right to put Jesus to death. And they needed a second set of charges that they would bring. There are actually three. We'll look at those later. Three charges that they needed to bring to Pilate in order to have a judgment against him by the Roman nation to justify their actual putting him to death, his crucifixion. And so they're setting the stage to carry out these designs. But again, it was nothing more than to get rid of him. We mentioned earlier that in John chapter 11, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, had already mentioned that his motives were purely political He says it is expedient in John 11, verses 50 to 51, I think, that it's expedient for one man to die on behalf of the nation. And so it was a way also to appease Rome because of this one who was a troubler, inciting possibly a a rebellion or some kind of massing of crowds to follow him that could bring against the Jewish nation the wrath of Rome. And so putting him to death, getting rid of him, was a way to just make their problems go away. 
And so now that they found the reason to satisfy their own religious conscience, it says in verse 2 that they bound him, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate the governor. And again, remember along these lines that, and John mentions this in John 18, that they were not allowed by Roman law to condemn anybody to death. And so they essentially want the Roman government to get their own hands bloody so that they could somehow convince themselves that they didn't share in that kind of guilt, which we'll see later in this own passage. But in fact, they did. Now, you might ask, why didn't they just put him to death? Or why didn't they stone him? There are other instances in the New Testament of them doing that. The one you think of probably most immediately is of Stephen. Even Paul at the time is the one who laid his cloak aside and they stoned Stephen, if you remember, because he was blasphemed. He looked up into heaven, saw Christ standing at the right hand of the Father as they took his life. Why didn't they just do that now to Jesus? Well, again, we've looked at these reasons. This is a reminder. The main reason, one of them, was because they were afraid of the people. Matthew's already made that known to us. The people held him in large, in general, in high esteem, and they knew if they were to do that, it would incite some kind of riot, and the people may actually turn on the leaders themselves. And so they wanted to remove themselves in the eyes of the people from any blame, and they could put it on the Romans. The Romans did this. But probably one of the most important reasons, or the most important reason, is that this is according to the Father's sovereign plan. We are confronted with at every turn that every event that is taking place is according to the sovereign plan of God. Even Jesus' moment in the garden where he asked the Father if there were another way, if he could bring that about in that moment of grief and even that moment of fear over what was coming. And there was no other way. It was the Father's plan. Everything was the Father's plan, and it was the plan that the Son was fully submitted to, and he says, not my will, but your will be done. And so everything had to happen this way. It had to be by crucifixion. And I think there's a hint of this in Romans 3.25. It says in the New American Standard that he is the propitiation of the satisfaction of God's righteousness, whom God displayed publicly. That could also be translated, and some of your Bibles have it, ESV and others, as set forth. And the idea is set forth for all to see as the sacrifice that God had provided. So the fact that he was hung on a Roman cross, condemned by the Roman government, outside the city precincts of Jerusalem, was a way for the whole world to see, this is my son, And this is the sacrifice that has been provided for sin. And so it had to happen this way. He had to be delivered over to Rome. He came in the fullness of time, even when crucifixion was the the means of them putting criminals to death. And so that was the means that God had designed for him to die. And so it had to happen that way. So we just notice as Matthew sets up for us, really is the heart of the passage for For us this morning in chapter 3 through 6, the fact that the wicked leaders are simply carrying out their designs, but they're doing so according to the sovereign hand of God. Let's notice secondly, in verses 3 to 5 then this, the end of the wicked is despair and death. The end of the wicked is despair and death. And we're going to spend most of our time here. It says in verse 3, Then Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he being Christ. Judas, Judas saw what was actually taking place. And he felt remorse. And he removed the 30 pieces of silver, or he, he felt remorse and turn, returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. So the council has ended. Don't know where Judas was during all of this time, but he was certainly aware of what was happening. Maybe he was somewhere even near Peter who was able to watch it from the courtyard where the houses were joined, where the two trials took place. Who knows? But he was aware of what happened. He was aware that they had condemned him. And he was aware that Jesus was now, in direct consequence to his actions, going to be led to death. It hit him. And the full consequences of his actions were now apparent to his own conscience. And he was fully and completely struck with his own guilt and his own responsibility for everything that he saw taking place. He knew that he was guilty and he knew that Jesus was innocent. And it overwhelmed him. 
It absolutely overwhelmed him. It says he felt remorse. He felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver. Now, this is extremely, extremely sad. Extremely sad, but very important to understand. When Judas realized what he had done and the full conviction of his actions came to bear on his conscience, he felt it, there's a darkness that came over Judas, an emotion of regret. And I think you might could agree, because we've all felt this at some level in our lives, that is one of the most terrible human emotions. The sense of regret, the sense of sorrow, the sense of not being able to undo something wrong that you have done. And that's what Judas felt. It was a frantic sense of need to undo or make up for what he had done. But this is impossible. It's absolutely impossible. When you sin and when I sin, the sin is done. We can't undo the sin. We can't cover it up in some way. We can't remove the stain of guilt on our own. No matter what we might convince ourselves of or people do, what he had done, he had done. The sin he had committed, he had committed. And he was fully responsible for it, and he understood that. He couldn't make the guilt go away. It reminds us somewhat of that, I think is one of the most powerful lines in that song, Rock of Ages. You know this verse, it says this, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And he certainly understood the first part of that. His guilt was there. He couldn't remove it. But what's striking about Judas in this particular passage is how much his response to his guilt mirrors what would be a right response. In fact, in many ways, mirrors Peter's own response to his sin in having failed Jesus. And he really demonstrates for us that there is a great similarity between true and false conviction. He had contrition. He acknowledged, he confessed his sin. He sought to change his actions and and turn around and do the opposite of what he had done that was so wicked. And yet, it wasn't repentance at all. Let's just consider Judas first, and then we're going to look at that a little more closely. And distinguish and make some uh, distinguishing comments here. But let's just notice Judas first, what he did. First, upon realizing that he had sinned, Matthew tells us that he felt remorse. If you have a King James version, it might say he repented unto himself or something like that. Some older versions have repented. The word isn't for repented. Repented is a different word. The word used here speaks of an emotion. It speaks of an emotion. It speaks, it has the idea of regret. For something done. It has the idea of that deep and intense emotional reaction over sorrow for an action that you wish you could change but you cannot. The word usually translated for repentance or that is rightly translated for repentance actually has to do with a change of mind, yes, but actually a change of a course of life. This just speaks of the sorrow. It simply speaks of the emotion. Judas clearly felt a sorrow a form of conviction from recognizing that he had done wrong, again, that he was guilty. And I have no doubt that if you asked Judas in that moment, Judas, if you could do everything over again, would you do the same thing? And he would have said, no, no, I wouldn't do that. I wish I could go back and undo it. But he can't, but he can't. And so what did he do? He felt remorse. He, again, with a sense of probably being frantic over recognizing what, he had done. He went back to find these leaders and he returned to the 30 pieces of silver. In other words, he sought to undo his actions. He tried in some sense maybe to do the right thing. And, and notice here that this money, which was so appealing to him, this idea of maybe even in some way getting back at Jesus who had so disappointed him in terms of his true mission, all of a sudden became to him hateful. It was like poison in his soul and his presence that he just had to get rid of. He needed to get rid of it. It was sickening and it was hateful to him. And I would suggest that that sin often works like that. We commit some act of sin that very often when we realize the guilt of what we have done, 
the consequences maybe even of it. We wish we could change it, but we can't. We just want to get rid of it. That's how Judas felt. That silver was to him the evidence of his guilt. It was a reminder of his sin. And by getting rid of it, there may have been some sense of where he felt like he could remove himself or separate himself in some way from the guilt of what he had done. That some way, if he could at least get rid of the money he received, that would, that would lessen the reality of his culpability. Or maybe that he thought of it as some sort of a type of penance or some sense of maybe if he did the right thing, it would make up for what he had done wrong. That's how a lot of people live their spiritual life in unbelief. We have a whole religious system that's set up on that same idea. You do wrong, go do these religious acts, it'll help make it up for what is right. So he felt remorse, he tried to change his actions, and third, look at what he did. He confessed his sin. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Notice that his confession is clear, it is public, it is thorough, and it is to the point. It was a full and right and clear acknowledgement of his wrong. He did not try to hide the fact that he was the guilty one and Jesus was the innocent one. And he mentioned specifically what he did. He betrayed him. He betrayed him. And notice in this, though, that even in this bearing testimony of, or Judas bearing testimony to his sin, God is bearing testimony at every point to the innocence and to the perfection of Christ. That he is absolutely sinless. The only righteous one in all of this is Christ himself. The one who would be our substitute, our sacrifice. Judas had walked with him for three years, day in and day out. If anyone, especially with wicked intents like Judas, would have had a charge against Jesus, he would have laid it out, but he had none. Even at the end of it all, despite Judas's wickedness, despite his betrayal, despite the fact that he despised him, he knew and his conscience could not deny that Christ was absolutely innocent of any wrong at all. He was sinless. He was perfect. And so he bore testimony to that. And in fact, his knowledge of that probably only increased the misery of his own guilt. And there seems to be a sense here in confessing this that he, he wanted some kind of absolution maybe from these leaders. Some, some way that they could lessen his guilt. Some way they could salve and at least in a measure his conscience. And so he's going to them. Maybe the idea is that in throwing it back that he wanted them to use it for good. Who knows? He just knew he had to get rid of it. And so even though he tells them this, look at their response. Verse 4. What is that to us? See to that yourself. Absolutely contemptuous of Judas. Absolutely hard-hearted. They could not have cared less of his misery. And the fact is, they didn't care because they themselves were guilty and sinning. Their heart was absolutely, their conscience was absolutely shut off to any kind of conviction. Any kind of conviction. Now, up to this point, the response of Judas and the response of Peter look very similar. They look very similar. There is a recognition of wrong done. There is a great remorse for it, a desire for change. But it's the last action of Judas that's the most crucial for us to understand. It's the last action. And it's the most revealing about the inner reality of his heart, what was going on in his thinking, what was going on in his soul in his thoughts about God. And in that way, then, it's a measure for us to discern our own thoughts and our own soul and our own reasoning and our own sorrow. So he throws the silver in frantic despair into the temple area, and he went out, and Matthew tells us that he went away and he hanged himself. He hanged himself. He committed suicide. Why? Well, the same reason anybody who commits suicide does so. Because they think there's a greater happiness in that. That there's some kind of relief from the misery. So he ended his life in hope of ending his misery, which was unbearable to him. Although in reality, it only began a worse misery that he would never be able to rid himself of. That he would experience forever. As the darkness overtook his soul... The deep sense of regret at what he had done kept him trapped within his own minds and his own feelings. 
He had a deeper and deeper sense of hopelessness. And the more that he felt his hopelessness, the darker and the darker his mind became. And the weightier and weightier his guilt became in his own conscience. And he felt like he could do nothing about it. And that's the way that conviction of sin, particularly when there's a grievous sin committed in an unregenerate heart, that's the way it works. That's the way it works. That's the way it works on the mind and the soul of unbelief. And so the only relief he could envision, the only relief that he could imagine ever receiving is to take his own life. And it was gruesome. Actually, Peter tells us a few more details about it. You don't turn there. Let me just read it. You're familiar, but it's in Acts chapter 1. They have to replace Judas, of course, now that Christ has ascended, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. They have 11 disciples, apostles. They need another. And in doing that, and in recounting all of this, Peter lays out the death of Judas. He says in verse 16 of Acts chapter 1, Brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. This was according to God's plan. By which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was accounted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gashed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, the field of blood. So apparently... When he went out and he hanged himself, it was some near, somewhere near a precipice, some kind of cliff. And at some point, details aren't given, the rope broke, he fell down the cliff, his body burst open, and it was a gruesome, gruesome sight. I want you to just notice here, just in, at least in passing, this is how Satan treats his children. This is how Satan treats his children. Remember that he had done his deed because Satan entered into him. Satan had already been tempting him. His unregenerate heart, he was gradually giving himself more, over more and more to Satan's lies. Finally, Satan had total control of him that happened during the Last Supper. Satan entered into him. He went out and did what he did. And when Satan was done, apparently he left him. That kind of control, intimate involvement in him, he had done his deed. He'd been used by Satan. And then he's thrown off to the side and killed, left to his own misery. Satan didn't care. That's how Satan works in everything. That's how sin works. It has a promise of good. It has a promise of something that will bring pleasure. But in the end, it leads to death. And notice here again, also in passing, that though not all feel the same intensity of misery here on earth. I mean, in fact, these leaders were fine. right? They don't show this kind of sorrow or conviction. And so though may all who are guilty of the same kind of sin or sin, don't necessarily feel the same kind of conviction even that Judas is displaying here. But the reality is they will. They will. The despair that Judas feels is but a small foretaste of what everyone in hell will feel forever. And that's a sober thought. That is a sober thought. Jesus reminded us many times, many times, this is Jesus who told us this, that in eternal punishment there will be Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, which has a picture of great misery, great sorrow. Some even who want to hold the idea of fire as metaphorical say that really what that fire represents is the deep conviction of guilt. This unrelenting guilt of the sinner in judgment who always has an accusing conscience of their wrong. That may or may not be the case. I take it more literal. But it is a picture of the reality, the emotional reality of eternal judgment. And, and Judas is here giving us a foretaste of that, a foretaste of that. But let's notice a few things here. I want to notice a few other things about Judas. There's several things to notice about the two experiences of Judas and of Peter that's really important for us to understand. It's important for us to understand so that we can discern our own spiritual lives and, and discern between what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians, we'll mention that just briefly later, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. The godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to life, and the worldly sorrow that leads to death. And I think that that is really at least an important secondary reason why the Holy Spirit had 
Matthew put these right next to each other so that we could look at these two together and say, look at Peter, look at Judas. Discern the difference. And it's very crucial then for us to understand the inner workings of our own heart and how we discern what is a working of the Spirit in the heart and what is a working of nothing more than our own flesh and sinful thinking. Because even the unregenerate can have intense movements of conscience as Judas had, that looks like sorrow, but in fact, it is not. And I believe that the failure to understand this keeps many religious but unregenerate people blinded in their sin because they have a wrong understanding of how to discern between true sorrow and empty sorrow. And I even think that it's, for many believers, a reason why they fail to really have a true conviction of their sin and know the grace of Christ in their own life. I can remember in my own life, just as a little side note here, about eight years ago, I mean, I'd known this very well, where God brought this truth to me very clearly, and it's been one of the most helpful things in my spiritual life, is to ask myself these questions, to look and discern what's going on in my own heart, to make sure that what I am Feeling when I get discouraged or depressed or sorry for sin is, in fact, that which leads to repentance and life. So let's look at these. I'm going to give three ways, three ways to distinguish between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Three ways to distinguish between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. The first is this. Godly sorrow, godly sorrow is grieved about dishonoring the Lord whom the spiritually alive soul loves. It's grieved about dishonoring the Lord. Worldly sorrow is grieved and wrecked over personal failure. Over personal failure. The grief in godly sorrow comes because there is a sincere love for and desire for Christ. A sincere desire to honor him. And when it's godly sorrow, that sincere desire to love and to honor Christ is struck with the fact that I have dishonored him and is sorry for it. The same way that any husband would feel bad if he dishonored or sinned against his wife or his children or any friend would feel that against a friend. That idea, anyway, so much more against the Lord. But godly sorrow is grieved. Peter was grieved and he went out and he wept bitterly because his eyes met the Lord as he was being led away. And Peter realized, I failed him and I love him. He said, I never will deny you. He said that out of a sincere devotion, though misguided and tainted with pride. But he said that out of sincere devotion. And when he realized that he failed, he was devastated because he loved Christ. He truly did. He truly wanted to serve him. And he realized how miserably he failed. And he went out and he wept bitterly. That's godly sorrow. That's a good kind of sorrow. That's a right kind of sorrow. For our sin. The grief and worldly sorrow, however, comes from a sense of personal failure. A sense of really that really has a love for one's own pleasures that they realize now won't be fulfilled. One's own plans and designs that they know now have been dashed. Regretting consequences that are going to come for actions. It's completely self-centered. Judas was devastated because he realized that he was guilty of a terrible sin. All of his hopes and his plans that he had laid out came crashing down. He knew that they were not going to be fulfilled, and he was devastated. And he was devastated by what it meant to his own condition and his own guilt. He was devastated by the consequences of his sin. He was not devastated that he had dishonored the Lord. That wasn't in there. So you have to ask your questions when you... When you're grieving over sin, ask yourself, why am I so grieved over this sin? What is so bothering me? And in fact, one of the most helpful ways to discern what goes in our heart is this. What emotion does that produce in my heart? If it is discouragement, this kind of ongoing discouragement, this on-kind-of-going depression because of, you know, all my plans are not going to work out or so I let myself down, that kind of thing, that's a worldly sorrow. It's the kind of thing that Judas felt. That's the kind of thing Judas felt. Secondly, so a godly sorrow is concerned about having dishonored the Lord. A worldly sorrow is only concerned because of the consequences to self. A second, godly sorrow seeks to change in order to honor the Lord and express love for him. To honor the Lord and express love for him. Worldly sorrow tries to make up or cover over the wrong done in order to change the outcome or to save face. That's what worldly sorrow is. 
The heart in godly sorrow sincerely desires to turn from the sin, to obey Christ, to prove and to demonstrate love for him. It wants the joy of honoring Christ where he was dishonored, of obeying Christ where he was not obeyed, of expressing love for him where love failed. That's what godly sorrow feels. Peter went out and he wept, but later he was reunited with the disciples. He wanted to be among God's people. And when the Lord came near on the shore after the resurrection in John 21, what did he do? Remember? He jumped in the water. He had to be near to the Lord. He had sinned. No doubt he was ashamed. But his heart longed for more than anything else is to be near Christ. Why? Because Christ was the one his soul loved. He loved him. He wanted to be near to him. He was humbled. He was sorry, but he had to be near Christ. And that's what godly sorrow does. It turns to Christ because it still longs. It can't bear the separation from him. It can't bear the lack of fellowship that sin has brought. And it wants everything to be restored to him and to be brought near to Christ again and to have this loving fellowship with the Father and the Son. And the fruit and the proof of this is that it desires then to obey him. And Peter's life showed that. His life was a testimony of not trying to make up for it, but a testimony of his love for him. You remember, tradition tells us, very likely, he was crucified upside down. He says, I'm not even worthy to be dying the same way as my Lord. He loved him. He had such reverence for him. He loved the Lord. His life showed it. He wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. He sinned. It's even recorded for us in Scripture later where he sinned in a similar way, Galatians 2. But he was sorry. He was humbled by it. He loved Christ. And that's, that's where godly sorrow lives. But worldly sorrow seeks just to make up for a wrong. It operates on a work system. It does something in hopes that it will change the outcome or alleviate the consequences or somehow make the guilt go away. And so Judas, in worldly sorrow, threw the money into the temple and thought if he got rid of it, maybe his guilt would go away. Maybe it could make up for his sin. He didn't desire to honor Christ out of love. So true sorrow leads to repentance. To repentance. And repentance is toward Christ and righteousness. Understand this. That repentance is not simply changing in action. Not, not spirit-wrought Repentance. That's part of it. It's an inextricable part of it. But that's not all of it. In repentance, the repentant sinner, in faith and trust, turns from the heart to the Lord. Do you see the difference? It's not just changing the things that I do. It's not saying I did this, so now I'm going to start doing this. It's saying I dishonor the Lord, and now I want to honor him. I want to turn to the Lord. So if our sorrow doesn't turn you, or your sorrow doesn't turn you to Christ in love, to act in his honor, humbled by what grace cost, what your forgiveness cost, grateful for his sacrifice, then it doesn't matter how many tears are shed, it doesn't matter how many sacrifices are made, and it doesn't matter how many religious works are done, it cannot remove guilt. It cannot remove guilt. It's not unlike... This is a different, a different, but it's not unlike. I think it illustrates the point well. In 1 Corinthians 13, don't turn there again. He says, if I speak with the tongues of angels and men but don't have love, it's a noisy, gone, clanging symbol. If I have prophecy and all knowledge and faith but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. In other words, if, if their heart isn't right... If what's being done is not really what the Spirit is producing in the heart out of sincere faith and love for Christ, it doesn't matter what is done on the outside. It doesn't matter how much it costs you. You could give everything away to try to do right. It doesn't matter how many tears that you cry and how bad you feel. It matters of whether you want to turn to the Lord to be restored to him through grace. That's what matters. So godly sorrow, thirdly, this is the last one. Godly sorrow looks to God's provision of grace in Christ as the only but the certain hope of forgiveness. Godly sorrow turns to Christ and says, Christ, you were provided to be a savior. I want you more than anything. Forgive me. Father, forgive me for what you've done in Christ. And it longs for that. Worldly sorrow only looks inward to self or outward to some earthly means to find relief. Because that's really all it wants is relief. It doesn't want righteousness. It wants relief. 
And so the sorrow that the Spirit produces draws the heart to look to Christ, to turn to the Father's gift of grace in Christ and to Christ himself who made provision for forgiveness, for reconciliation. The heart with godly sorrow seeks to be restored to the fellowship with God. It seeks to be restored to spiritual intimacy with him. It wants that more than anything. And so it looks to Christ. It looks to Christ. Peter loved the Lord, was restored in that love, and he ultimately trusted in Christ's forgiveness. He came to understand that, look, the very reason that Christ suffered all of that was to do that in my place so that I could be forgiven of my sin, so that I could be restored. Godly sorrow confesses sin. And like 1 John says, says, it trusts in the fact that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, godly sorrow has Christ at the center. And it has faith in in him at the center. Worldly sorrow doesn't. The sorrow of the world or unbelief does not believe the promises of God in Christ. does not seek reconciliation. It seeks this, and this is so important. It seeks relief from pain. Relief from pain. It would go after anything that would bring that relief, but it won't turn to Christ. It won't humble the soul before him. And when relief from soul's pain cannot be found, it just draws more inward and inward to itself in discouragement, despair, and hopelessness. Beloved, if you are a believer and if I am a believer in Christ, you should not live in despair and hopelessness as if Christ had not provided redemption. As if the Father had not crucified his Son in our place and given us hope. That is a wrong place to live. And if you are a Christian and you find yourself there more often than you should, then I would encourage you to go through these lists and discern your heart and confess that as sin. Confess that as unbelief and ask God to change your heart and look to Christ and realize that faith receives him. It receives his mercy and his grace and it rests in his mercy and his grace and is restored out of the abundance of that grace then to love him and to change out of that love, to serve him and to glorify him in this world with our life. Judas wasn't willing to do that, nor any other religious unbelievers convicted by sin. After all Judas saw, after all the gracious acts of Christ he witnessed, after all of the kind and the gracious words and the appeals the sinner come to me, Those who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. He heard all of those words. He saw the people that he healed. And yet, he was unwilling to believe. He despised Christ, actually. Even to the end, he despised him. He didn't want anything to do with him. Certainly wouldn't receive him as the Lord of heaven and earth and a perfect Savior. This is precisely what Paul was talking about when he said that there is... Let me just read this to you. I've referenced it, but this is in 2 Corinthians. He says, he says this, that God, God... Or he says this, For sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Here is the example of godly sorrow. For behold, speaking to the Corinthians, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of the wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. You demonstrated that you had true sorrow, true repentance, marked by a righteousness of life. And the last point on this. Christ was willing to forgive Judas just as he was Peter. He was willing to forgive Judas, just as he was Peter. If Judas would have come in faith and true godly sorrow and true repentance, he could have found relief and reconciliation in Christ. But in the end, he would not humble himself. And that is the glorious truth. That is the glorious truth, that no matter how deeply we have sinned against the Lord, forgiveness is always available. The only thing that keeps a sinner from receiving the forgiveness of Christ is the sinner's own unbelief, their own sin, their own unwillingness to humble themselves. God keeps no one, keeps no one from receiving the grace of Christ who wants reconciliation with him. None. Judas could have received it, and so can you, if that's the position you're in. And we need to remember that when we are convicted of our sin. 
So here's the warning, though. God's offer of forgiveness is only for those who are seeking God in Christ. It's not available for those who simply want relief from sorrow, who simply want relief from the consequences of action, who simply want to receive God's benefit so you can spend it on yourself. That's not who forgiveness is for. But for those who are broken and want reconciliation, who want to honor God with their life, who are sorry for what they've done, grateful for grace, there is abundant mercy. Let's look quickly at these last two points. Because I don't want to save it for too long. So I'm just going to briefly mention it. So the end of the wicked then is despair. It's despair and death. Note thirdly here as well. That the wicked try to cover over their acts of wickedness with a veneer of righteousness. Try to cover over with a veneer of righteousness. Look at what they did. He threw it back to them. He went out and hanged himself. And what did the chief priests do? Utterly lacking conviction, they took the pieces of silver in verse Six, and they said it's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. They conferred together, and with the money they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Basically this, the potter's field or the field burial place for strangers was actually a good thing to do. It was a place where those who were traveling, Jews who were traveling from foreign lands, if they died without family and resources... Uh, while in Jerusalem, in that area, it was a place that they could go be buried. And it's very possible it was also open to Gentiles as well. But the point is, is that was a good thing for them to do. But they're doing this good thing, not out of a desire for righteousness, but as a desire to cover up their own sin. They knew that it was blood money. Look at verse 6. It's the price of blood. We can't put it in the treasury. Why? Because it's money that's ill-gotten gain, ill-gottenly gained. So, but we'll do something else with it. It's, it's almost humorously ironic in verse 8 that in, by God's own design and his providence that the field that they tried to buy to cover over their own guilt bears the very name of their guilt. It is the field of blood. It's blood money field. It's blood money field. It's where the leaders betrayed their own Messiah. And it would forever be remembered that way and recorded for us in Scripture. This is what happens with the unrighteous. Try to cover it over. I'll just do better. I'll do something good with it. I stole the money, but that's okay. I'll buy something good or give it to the church. I cheated on my taxes. That's okay. I'll give a little extra money for a good cause. That kind of thing. That's essentially what was going on here. But it's all under the sovereign hand of God. Let's just notice briefly verses 9 through 10. They did that, but it was what Jeremiah spoke. Though he took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord had directed. As the Lord had directed. Now I'm just going to mention this. We don't have time to go into detail, not even what I have uh, written down to go over. Let me just notice this, that the words are... Very close, and now they borrow, take from Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. And so people have come up with all kinds of ways to explain why he says Jeremiah when the words mirror that of Zechariah chapter 11. Some say it was simply an error on Matthew's part. Others say it was something a copyist put in somewhere along the way. Some say even that the Jews used to refer to the law and then the prophets, uh, the, po- the poetry and then the prophets, uh, and Jeremiah covered them all. They would say in Jeremiah, and so he's just really referring to the prophetic word. But all of those really fall short. I think, and just very briefly, the best way to understand this, why does he mention Jeremiah, is this. Is that actually in Jeremiah chapter 19, there is a closer parallel to what's going on here. There is elements from Zechariah that are taken, and there are elements from Jeremiah that are taken. This is a common way that prophecy is blended together in Scripture. Look at Mark 1 and 2. He does that with Isaiah and Malachi, and he only mentions Isaiah because he was the greater prophet. That's what he did here. That's what he did here. There is a scene in Jeremiah 19 where the field is bought. It's a field of slaughter, and that actually is the same field, most likely, where this potter's field is located. It was a field that was, had the blood of innocence in it. It was a field that represented judgment against God, against the apostasy of his people. All of those things are what we see here. Zechariah adds the number of silver pieces that Zechariah, who was acting out a parable, was undervalued by 
the people of God. And so he took it and threw it back into the temple area. So Matthew is taking both of those prophecies and he's mentioning Jeremiah because he is actually the closer to it and is the greater, the more well-known prophet. And he's laying it out here. But the point of it is simply this. God is in absolute sovereign control. God is in sovereign control. And the end of that sovereign control is this, is one, to know that wickedness is not the last word. But I think in some ways more importantly even, is the fact that God has provided a savior. He's in control of this. It's his plan. He's providing a savior. Everything that Christ is enduring isn't by the happenstance of the wicked world. It is because the Father, the eternal Father, has given his Son, who took on flesh, to stand in the place of his people who were given to him in eternity past, to know his forgiveness, to know his love, to know his grace, and to live a life of worship and trust and obedience and praise to him in this world and forevermore. That's what's going on. And he's going to accomplish his purpose. And that's what Matthew's laying out for us. So as we come to the table, ask yourself these discerning questions. Do you love the Lord? Do you love him? When you sin, are you sorry because you love him? Do you want to turn and do what is right because he's so worthy? Because his grace is so great. You alone can discern your own heart. But as we come and prepare our hearts for worship, let's come with an attitude of worship thankfulness for the sacrifice by which we could be reconciled to God and have fellowship with him forever. And so spend this time in fellowship with the Lord, delighting in him, and then we'll take the elements together. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is so sufficient. You have provided for us in your word every example, both as a warning of hypocrisy and what is wrong and both as an example of what is right you've given us instruction you've given us encouragements you've given us illustrations you've given us affirmations of your plan and your purposes in this world you have supplied everything for us in your word and we are so thankful help us to be faithful students of it and we thank you for this example of judas as terrible as it is as much as it grieves us to think of these realities We are instructed by them, and for that we thank you. And help us to be wise in the way that we discern our spiritual lives and make us true lovers of Christ and true repenters, true obeyers who do it out of love, who anticipate more than anything, not only the fellowship that we have with you here, but that eternal fellowship that we will have with you forever, and so that we would live our lives with purity and holiness for your honor and glory. Now as we take these elements, would you please encourage and strengthen our faith as we remember these things and we offer our time to you in the name of Jesus, amen.